Hey, Joy and Conversation listeners. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a moment to share some amazing news. You may have noticed that we've released fewer episodes in recent months, but don't worry, Joy and Conversation isn't going anywhere. We're not fading away. In fact, we're undergoing a transformation in the full realization of our vision. We started with the vision to educate and to make Jewish history and culture more accessible and intriguing, especially to non-academic audiences. We wanted people to see Jewish people as pluralistic and dynamic, as a global people whose identities evolve, adapt, and take on different forms of expressiveness. Importantly, we wanted to focus on stories of Jewish joy. This is where humanity lies. This is where compassion is cultivated. And now, this mission, well, it's being taken to new heights. Joy in Conversation is now the audio experience of Project Mosaics. And Project Mosaics is our newly established 501c3 nonprofit. In the coming months and years, we'll continue to produce our podcast, but we'll also be developing resources for teaching and learning so that Jewish history, culture, identity, and arts can be more thoroughly integrated into classrooms. The podcast is for everyone, but Project Mosaics is focusing on what is taught in schools. Our form of education is grounded in multiculturalism and is culturally affirming. Project Mosaics exists to make Jewish history and culture more central to what is taught in our schools, because this history shouldn't remain unknown. So if you want to know more about our new nonprofit, Project Mosaics, visit the website, projectmosaics.org. And if you want to see this mission become a thriving and sustained reality in schools, if you want to see more Jewish history as part of an inclusive curriculum, consider donating. Your support is vital to making this work possible. So please visit projectmosaics.org. Tell a friend, tell a stranger, make a donation, and continue helping us take this vision and bring it into the world. Help Project Mosaics connect the pieces of Jewish history. Okay, so now on with the episode. I feel very proud that I sent you to Hebrew school and to religious school. You have extended that, which I think, you know, that's awesome. You being bar mitzvah and Erica being bat mitzvah, that's just a proud thing that I never got bat mitzvah. I just thought that it's our heritage and I thought that that was real important. I shared the traditions of all the Jewish holidays and what the Jewish holidays mean to me. All the history of my grandparents, of knowing that my father's father was a cantor. I'm very proud of that. I wish I knew more about him. I have a picture of him. I just know that he was in a temple in Brooklyn. Dad, he was really good about it to take you to Hebrew school and got involved. And he's very proud that he was the home and guy. You know, I feel very proud that you are continuing the heritage. You're continuing making the challah. 
I felt a lot of pride when we went to Israel, you know, that you would want to go to Israel and show us. I felt very proud about that. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find Joy in Conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. The voice you just heard to open the episode is that of Lisa Grace, my mother. I recently asked her a few questions about raising me and my sister to be Jewish. What she shared was laced with fond memories. And as I listened, I felt transported by scenes that she described. Trips to Brooklyn to visit my great-grandmother, an afternoon spent in the kitchen, rolling dough and pinching humantashens, oozing with poppy, raspberry, apricot, and strawberry filling before putting them into the oven. The last time we made humantashens together, my father asked me what I remember from celebrating Purim as a child. We sat around the table, my mom and my dad, my wife and I. I recounted how much I loved groggers and the permission that they bestowed to break decorum and get wild and crazy at the synagogue. Only a few rows removed from the bima, which housed the congregation's Torah scrolls. After sharing this memory, I smiled and bit into some homentations, recounting the scene again in my mind. This recent exchange of memories at the kitchen table, surrounded by plates of freshly baked Purim sweet treats, included two generations of interfaith relationships. My father and my wife are Catholic. My mother and I are Jewish. I was raised in a predominantly Irish Catholic community, in one of the few Jewish families in town. My mother was raised in New York, where being Jewish was commonplace, not terribly noteworthy. My sister and I were brought up elsewhere, where we very much felt like outsiders in this regard. In this context, humor helped. I used to quip that my town was so un-Jewish that when I'd bring bagels to school, kids would ask me what was wrong with my donut. My dad relied on humor too. His joke was that he agreed to raise his children Jewish because he thought it would be easier. Raised Catholic, he dreaded the idea of his kids partaking in weekly CCD attendance, First Communion, Confirmation, and all the other time-consuming rites of passage that he endured in his youth. His joke was that he thought he was getting out of having to drive his kids to church. He didn't want to drive, but he soon learned how to schlep. And schlep he did for years as we drove nearly a half hour to our synagogue, where my sister and I took Hebrew lessons, among our other much more time-consuming and intensive religious education that may have gotten my dad out of church, but definitely got him well acquainted with shul. All jokes aside, there's a lot to be said about parenting and what I've shared. There's a lot about Jewish parenting in the story. There is no single Jewish family dynamic, no one standard Jewish family unit. What Judaism means in any given household can really vary quite widely. My mother, for instance, was born into a Jewish home in a Jewish community, while my father had much to learn after decades of unfamiliarity with the faith, its traditions, and what it entailed to live with Jewish customs as a part of the fabric of daily life. Yet over time, it would be, for example, his homentashen recipe that won people over at synagogue. We say that with a lot of pride in my family, 
not only because food and time together in the kitchen are ways that we express love and connection, but because this is one easy enough to remember example of how my father, who never converted, became part of this community. He embraced holidays. He learned to recite prayers. On occasion, he'll wear a yarmulke at synagogue and at seders. He even has his very own menorah. The attitudes my parents demonstrated taught me to embrace difference and seek out people whose identities are unlike my own. They taught me that it doesn't require an identical upbringing or shared traditions to find love, form family, and raise children. Jewish parenting is complicated, and it isn't always straightforward. I'll be honest, I don't have children, but I was a child once, and I observed my parents protect traditions and also make compromises. I saw them make sense of Jewishness in terms that they understood and that they valued. This took vigilance and energy. There wasn't a roadmap for what they were doing, and even as they relied on traditions, there was a lot of invention along the way. I'm at the age where my sister, my friends, and my peers are having children. They're making decisions. Will their kids go to Hebrew school? Do these children get an elf on the shelf? Will they go along to get along? Will some of them, or all of them, or none of them, end up raising their kids against the grain? These questions of parenting and raising children Jewish have so much to do with where we came from, where we live now, what we value, the social pressure swirling around us. Parenting and raising children Jewish raises questions of erasure and assimilation, preservation and pride, among so many others. So I wanted to learn more about raising children Jewish and the context under which this happens. Jewish parenting in Tel Aviv is very much unlike what happens in suburban New England, which is also perhaps unlike what happens in Los Angeles. I sought out a scholar who could help me understand how Judaism, Jewishness, a sense of home, and the decisions made by parents are navigated and negotiated. I spoke with Amy Weinrib. So let's start by hearing from Amy before we bring some other folks into this conversation. Yella, let's learn together. I am a senior lecturer in Jewish studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and I am a cultural anthropologist. Amy's a cultural anthropologist, but when I spoke to her, our conversation focused more on intimate aspects of her identity and her lived experiences. She brought to this discussion her training and the lens of an anthropologist, which helped us situate her personal narrative in some broader patterns and frameworks. So let's learn about Amy and her relationship to Judaism, because this context is so crucial to appreciating her reflections and commentary as someone who has parented four children in Israel and the United States. I was born in East Lansing, Michigan in a mixed marriage. My dad was Jewish and my mom was not. She was Christian, grew up in a Lutheran home. And by halacha or Jewish law, I wasn't Jewish at all. And this became very important in terms of the Jewish status of um, future children and also being accepted um, easily into my in-law's family. And I had an Orthodox conversion So that was my personal transformation. 
there's something really different about not growing up in a certain tradition and having all of um, the rituals, the daily routines, the holidays, and raising children in a way that I wasn't raised myself gives me a really interesting window into that world. I got to witness this all as an individual person with all the emotions and perceptions that I had, but also as a cultural anthropologist and documenting a lot of it. My experience of Jewish Orthodoxy and of Israel is always with this a little bit of an outsider perspective. After my conversation with Amy, I was inspired to reach out to other people whose relationships to Judaism, experiences as parents, and notions of home and belonging complement and even at times depart from what Amy shared. I wanted to listen to folks who entered into Jewish life differently and whose family dynamics aren't all the same. Judaism isn't static. Jewishness is open to interpretation. External influences like assimilation or displacement in diaspora can shape outlooks and underpin decisions people make when forming family and figuring out what they value and wish to expose and instill in their children. Let's start by hearing from Elena Raphael and her family story that informs her outlook on Judaism and family life. Then we'll hear from Carolyn Mahbubi and Matt Hilgard. Collectively, they remind us that Jewish communal life truly is a mosaic of heritage and tradition, but also of profound diversity. And even within this diversity, there's mutually shared values and a sense of joy for what it means to be intentional and deliberate about parenting and practicing Judaism and Jewishness. So let's listen to Elena first. My grandparents left Germany during the war. Um, and my grandfather went to to Denmark. He was trying to get to Israel, but in order to go into Israel or at that time Palestine, he had to have a skill of some sort. So he went to Denmark to learn cabinet making, and that became his skill that allowed him entry into Palestine. And then once he was in Palestine, he joined the British Army, um, and he met my grandmother there. My grandmother had escaped Germany. The rest of her family had died in Auschwitz, but she made it to Israel. So they formed a life there. They had my mother's older sister there. And then eventually they were able to come to the United States by way of New York and eventually had my my mom. My mom, she was first generation here and she grew up just outside of Springfield in Massachusetts in this like small German Israeli immigrant community. Um, and they lived in a pretty insular Jewish community surrounded by other, you know, Germans and people who had come from Israel as well. Um, but I think my, my mother was sort of intrigued by life outside of that as well. So my father was not Jewish. He grew up Protestant, but didn't hold much religion at all. So was happy to sort of adopt Judaism as, as his religion when he got together with my mom, but she was excited to see the other side of things, I think, too. 
My name is Carolyn Mahbubi, and uh, I am an Iranian Jew. I grew up in Iran until about 11 years old, and then since then have lived in Los Angeles. The religious upbringing of my youth was mixed and, and unique in that uh, in Iran, I didn't experience in my generation any discrimination against Jews, but it was only after we came to the United States and our Judaism was so, so open and so uh, openly nurtured and cultivated that I realized how quiet we were about our Jewishness when we did live in Iran. My name is Matt, Matt Hildart. I was born in a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Grew up, left, went to Minnesota for school. I grew up in a family that my father was raised Catholic, my mother Protestant. What I do remember most about my childhood is that I really loved my um, church community. And it was because our pastor and youth groups were so active in a place for asking questions. It was a very open culture. I had an awareness of Judaism as a religion in my youth. And so I was aware of Judaism as a religion, but not nearly to the extent of the depth of the culture and the history. My son Avner, or Avi, has raised Jewish and is Jewish. I want my son to be raised Jewish and I want to support him in, in his life and in his pursuits of his own religion. When I spoke to Amy, we talked a lot about home, where she feels at home, who she feels most at home with. This was particularly relevant for her, not only as someone who converted to Judaism, but also as someone who raised children in vastly different geographies and cultures. One of the interesting things about being open to living in different places is that sometimes you actually wind up living there. Near the end of my PhD, um, I got married and um, married somebody who was very connected to Israel. And I knew that was part of the package deal. It was a complicated package, though, because I am very removed from Israel in terms of my own upbringing did the first move to Israel with a small child and pregnant. So my life looked really, really different. After about five and a half years, I realized that my job opportunities were actually quite limited in Israel at the time. I was not prepared to lecture and grade papers in Hebrew, and I was quite homesick. And my husband and I went on the job market and were able to get positions at the University of Texas of Austin, and we lived in Austin for a decade. There was parenting of small children in Israel in two different settings, in Tel Aviv and then in Mitzpahamon a decade in Austin, back to Jerusalem for a year. And now I've been in Jerusalem for another two years. So I have four children total, three of whom were born in Israel. A connection to Israel emerged as a commonality between Amy and Elena. Whereas Amy lived in Israel after converting and having children, Elena spent time living in Israel before having children. Elena is now living in the United States again, but her family's connection to Israel can be seen in how she's raising her children. My daughter goes to an Israeli preschool and we just signed her up for Jewish day school to start kindergarten next year. So she has 
a lot of knowledge and love for Israel, even though she hasn't experienced Israel. But all of her friends are Israeli. She's actually the only American in her school currently, which is kind of a cool dynamic. Parenting happens in a place. It doesn't happen outside of history or beyond the reach of culture. Children are raised in a setting. And the concerns and comforts, the problems and possibilities of parenting also happen in that setting. So I wanted to know from Amy, what it was like raising children in Israel and the United States? What did it mean for her children and for her as a parent? What it's also meant is that the kids have really different identities and connections and outcomes. And that it's meant um, it's been sort of a bicultural, bi-national, bilingual experience, but it depends on the child and when they were born and where they feel most at home. Who it's been the most different for is probably my two oldest kids. My daughter is 20. And my son is 18, and they, for the most part, have chosen different national paths because we had family in Israel. My oldest daughter decided that she wanted to stay and finish high school here, and she had the option to do that. Her Hebrew was very strong, and she felt most at home here and and connected to people. So we spent a couple of years with her living with a great aunt or with a family close to her school, and my husband and I would visit her. My son is currently living in Austin, finishing high school there. He didn't want to join us for this two-year leave. So he lived with family, friends, and is now living with an elderly woman who required some help. And he's finishing up high school in the States. Part of the story is young adults or teens waking up and deciding where they want to be. And my husband and I, as parents, having to realize with the level of back and forth that we've done, that that could be an outcome. It's not an outcome a lot of parents would choose, but I think it's there's something fair and important about it, especially when it comes to level of language acquisition and ultimately where you see yourself in terms of career path. Home can be grounding. Home is a sanctuary. It's a refuge. It's a place to be at ease and to thrive. Home is the space where we reside with those who we love and those who are closest to us. It's not necessarily a place, though. It can be a feeling we carry with us, a feeling that is too ineffable to be defined by soil or structures. So with Amy having arrived at Judaism through conversion, having landed in Israel without deep prior connections, and having children whose paths brought them to different cultures and continents. What does home mean to her? What does home mean to her family? I think that there's a big spectrum of what home means. So language is huge, where you feel most comfortable speaking and expressing yourself and being understood instantly and not having to translate. Another is memories that accrue, whether they're positive or negative. There's something familiar about spots on the landscape or places in the street or locations where there's an emotional component to walking through them. You're not a tourist and it's not distant from you. Another one is that you know how to raise kids there. And this is more for children of immigrants who I've spoken to in the States and here in Israel who make mistakes and embarrass their children. And that can be a distancing factor. 
and make the parent not feel at home, but sometimes make the child question whether this is really their home if their parent can't usher them through processes smoothly. I posed the same question about home to Elena, who also lived in Israel, but whose parenting began in the United States. Even though her family has been tempted to return to Israel because of job offers and their affinity for life there, they've so far decided to remain in America. My home now is where my kids are and my husband is. I think that Israel has such a strong part of our hearts for both my husband and myself and our families that that's another piece of home. Can we realistically move our kids and ourselves to Israel and have the kind of life there that we want to have? And there's this dreamy component of it where we want nothing more, but then there's this other piece of it where, you know, we won't be as financially stable there as we are here. So I think that home is wherever we are, although it it sort of ebbs and flows, I think. (laughs) Regardless of where parenting happens, challenges persist. These challenges may at times feel universal, eternal struggles of raising a child that any parent, anywhere, in any culture can comprehend. Some challenges may be more unique, such as those that come from moving to another country or adjusting to traditions that haven't always been your own. The things that I've said resonate with my experience as a parent in Israel and a homesickness of not feeling fully competent, which still, even after years, there's still mistakes that I make because if you can't easily in your bones replicate an experience that you had as a child, that can bring on homesickness as well. If you don't know how to throw a birthday party properly or celebrate a graduation, I don't have any blueprint for that. There's certainly not a handbook. And those are things that can make any parent feel homesick or any child feel resentful. Or they might witness other homes that are moving very smoothly through these experiences when being partly foreign or fully foreign in some ways can feel disjointed or exhausting or or sometimes kids have to teach their parents how certain things should go. And that brings up issues of home. When I was pregnant with my son, the one who now lives in Austin, and I was going to go give birth in Israel, I remember I was at the synagogue where I had my Jewish wedding and had um, where the rabbi who had overseen my conversion was, and we were celebrating our departure to Israel, which I had really mixed feelings about. Boy, did I not feel like I was going home. And the Rebetzin, or the rabbi's wife, said to me, oh, that's so amazing. You're going to go home to give birth. And I was like, there's a disjoint here. That's a discourse and an emotional orientation towards Israel and Zionism that I am not a part of. Let's hear from Matt. Matt is raising his child Jewish, but he himself comes from a Lutheran upbringing. Matt is actively involved and participates in Jewish customs, but in some ways, like Amy, he recognizes that he's navigating discourses and emotional orientations that aren't necessarily his own. I don't feel that it's my place to reinterpret such a tradition. And I think that's what can be intimidating about Judaism. People will spend their lives reading Talmud, and for me to come in 
not Jewish and just go, eh, uh, we're going to reinterpret what Shabbos means for us. And at the same time, I'm a rebellious kid. So for me, it's like, why not? This is how we keep these traditions living. This is how we keep them relevant to modernity. And frankly, this is how we keep Avi engaged. And he might take it and, and interpret it in his own way, which is beautiful. I'm balancing that like, ooh, I got to be careful. I'm not Jewish and it's not my role. But at the same time, if we're going to keep Jewishness in our family, it's going to be Judaism with a sense of how it relates to our own modern life and the values that we'd like to instill in our family. We obviously knew the difference and upbringings that we had in our religion. And we talked about what that would mean if we did have kids or, or, or want to have children. And so we come at it from a place of, yes, I am comfortable, you know, with children being raised Jewish, but I also have expressed my desire to at least understand what my beliefs are. For all the questions that I asked and everything that people shared about the idea of home, we continued coming up against places and moments when people felt like it wasn't quite easy being Jewish. Not every context is one where families can thrive, especially if they feel like outsiders when their pace and mode of life isn't part of the dominant flow of everyday existence. One of the painful things about living in the States with kids was that during the years that we kept Shabbat the most strictly, our kids couldn't participate in the ordinary public school things that most kids could. Like if there was a chess competition or uh, a science fair presentation or a school play or a choir concert, as a family, we were keeping Shabbat really strictly and wouldn't allow our kids to participate in those things because that wasn't part of our family culture. There's nothing wrong with a choir performance or a chess competition or a soccer game or any of the other delightful you know, extracurricular activities that could happen on a Friday night or a Saturday. But for our family, it was a mismatch. And I hate saying no to things like that, being part of a community or developing a skill or being part of an activity that's enriching. And one of my draws, one of my pulls back to Israel was to be able to live in a country where that was pretty normal. That you know, now we don't have to worry about chess competitions on Shabbat. This still comes up, but they're not going to happen. They're not going to be scheduled then because that's part of the rhythm of life here is to include people who do keep Shabbat and not exclude them from those kind of activities for the most part. So suddenly the U.S. in my new family and the family that I'd created didn't feel like home because saying no to kids and always trying to prevent assimilation or, you know, not go down that slippery slope where there'd be an erosion of Jewish or Israeli identity is totally exhausting. I couldn't do it anymore. I don't identify as Orthodox. My husband doesn't either. But, you know, there were these early years just after my conversion when we were building a young family where we looked pretty orthodox and led a fairly orthodox lifestyle. I think that part of the imprint of being in the States for a decade was losing that and having a new relationship with it that's more relaxed. Jewish holidays in the States suck. There's no emotional energy around them. It's like Poem is the ugly stepsister to Halloween. 
And the high holidays, which are a break here from school, school's off. It's big family meals and celebration and, you know, everybody who's Jewish in Israel all along the spectrum from secular to ultra-Orthodox are basically having a shared experience of some version of this holiday. And again, in the States, it's like, oh no, what Rosh Hashanah means is that I'm not going to be able to take my test or be in that performance. Israel was set up to accommodate a spectrum of Jewish experience and have Jewish holidays and cycles and rituals not be buried away in private in people's homes, but be very much part of the public rhythm of life. In the street, supermarket decorations, the soundscape at Simchat Torah, you can feel that you are not a hidden minority here and that it's safe and it's normal to talk about that being part of your culture or family or religion or tradition, where in the States, honestly, it can be sometimes embarrassing for kids. And I know that that's not home. That's, or maybe it is, I don't know, but it's not a home that I could tolerate after a decade. And it was causing lots of family rifts. And now, you know, we have family separations, but it's not the same as having family rifts. It's people being able to decide how they want to live their life and head towards personal goals. And it's painful and it's strange, but I think it's actually more peaceful than having yet another conversation where we sit down as a family and talk about how something can't happen on Shabbat and how that's gonna, (laughs) you know, that child's life feels kind of ruined. Elena was raised in a community where Jewish families were few and far between. Then she moved to Israel. Then she came back to America. She's found ways to avoid feeling like being a Jewish family means that religion and identity have to exist quietly and out of sight. She's finding ways to educate and inform her neighbors so that her children feel like they can celebrate and be proud, while they also invite members of the community to partake in the various ways that Elena and her family express their Jewish identities. Now on the street every year, you know, we've got the Laka party and people know that and they know that on Friday night, they can look in our windows and see that we've got candles lit for Shabbat and people come by and say Shabbat Shalom and they watch us do the blessing on the challah or the, you know, the Shabbat blessings. And a piece of it is funny. Like it's, I don't want to say it's a spectacle, (laughs) but sometimes it feels that way too. Like we're sort of on display, but I think we've also welcomed that by keeping our door open for these these pieces of our life. You know, our door is always open on Shabbat for people to come in and be with us for that. I'm not emulating what my mother did. I think perhaps in contradistinction to that, I'm doing what I'm doing now because I feel like, may her memory be a blessing, our Judaism was sort of quiet. We didn't make a footprint in a way that I feel like is important now to really own it and and share it. So I feel like for my children, it's important for me to create a bigger footprint to share with them our history and why it's important to me and to their father. Carolyn lives out West. She and members of her extended family settled there after leaving Iran. Her children, born in the United States, live with a certain ease and comfort with being Jewish that is unlike what she knew in her youth. I would say that my children are the first generation that were absolutely unaware that they're not a majority. 
they are a minority. And, and they didn't even realize that until much later. Judaism was part and parcel of their everyday life. And of course, we were celebrating Shabbat now and every single Jewish holiday within the family and the extended family. And not just that, but we live in a square mile in Los Angeles where over 100 members of our family lived in that one square mile, along with most of the non-Iranians were also Jewish in that world. And my daughter looked at me, she said, mommy, is everybody in the world Jewish? And I just thought, wow, to be part of a generation where that thought occurs to you, that that question is a valid question to ask for a child, is everyone Jewish? That to me was the moment where I realized that I certainly was a bridge generation, but that this next generation that was represented by my children could have a very different sense of what it means to be a Jew. Our religious practices are our cultural practices, which are our family practices. It's all kind of rolled into one. It runs deep. We don't have, in general, the big existential questions about, like, how Jewish am I? Carolyn observes how her children and their generation is positioned to have a different sense of what it means to be a Jew. On the other hand, living in the Midwest, in an interfaith household, where his in-laws are close but the extended family is still relatively small. What does Matt observe? And what does Jewishness mean for him and his growing family? Jewishness for our family is kind of a recognition of the community that Liz and Avi come from, the history, the culture, the traditions, the good stuff, the Mishigas, um, definitely a pride. And for me, I see it as just this wonderful gift that Avi has been born into. There's so many layers. There's so much beauty to the history of the Jewish people. There's so much complexity and diversity to the stories, to lineages, um, to cultures, to languages, to traditions um, that Avi is going to be able to take part in as uh, a young Jewish man. And it's going to be beautiful to watch that ride and to, to, to support him in that. The one tradition that we really hold dear in our family is kind of our, our own take uh, of Shabbos. Liz and I actually started this before marriage and just that she kind of introduced me to the lighting of the candles, the intentionality of taking time to pause from the hectic nature of modernity and all that we're facing today in society. It's, it's one of the coolest things I think about um, the religion, and that is something that we will hold pretty dear with Avi growing up too. And we already talk about what we envision our Shabbos nights to be. Raising children in a Jewish household can mean a lot of things in terms of what is valued and what messages are instilled within children. For Carolyn, what are the values that she holds on to and cultivates in her children as a parent? I wouldn't say that they're limited to Judaism, these two values. Family comes first, and that can show up in many, many ways, but that runs very deep for us, the sense of your commitment is first and foremost to the family. 
And decisions come from that. Decisions as to where to live, when to be where. So family comes first. It comes first to my children, even more than to me. I mean, that value is really very strong inside of the two of them. And then the second is kindness. I do think that we have a very, very kind religion. That if you really study the core of the religion, regardless of the different branches, regardless of whether you're Orthodox or conservative, you will find that we have that kindness, chesed, it's woven into every commandment. It's woven into every word in the Torah. And that's what I wanted my children to understand, that compassion and kindness is what it means to be Jewish. They cannot call themselves a Jew if they are not kind and compassionate in their heart to everyone, to everyone, not just Jews, not just their family, but to everyone. Amy, Elena, Carolyn, and Matt all entered into Jewish life very differently. They're also at very different stages of parenting. Some of their children have just entered into the world. Others are watching as their children become autonomous adults who live outside of the home. Each of these individuals has grappled with questions of where to live, how to live, and who to be as someone who's guiding youth through the world. Parenting comes with pain and exhaustion, yet there's also so much joy to be found in it. So where are they finding joy? How are they experiencing joy? The kind of joy that buoys the soul, even as questions linger and challenges persist as parents. What brings me joy Mm. as a parent? I think it's the shared experiences that I see my kids having and shared memories that they build between countries and that they don't just think that the U.S. is the center of the world. I think probably a lot of cultural anthropologists who are also parents have that same sentiment, but it's really something different to expose kids to in a profound and ongoing way. Uh, a different culture and have them be able to compare and contrast together for better and for worse and have good memories and sometimes painful memories, sometimes missing things that they don't have right now, but have kids that are actually global citizens in that way, but not global citizens who are detached and could just live anywhere, but who have two places where they have roots. There's Hebrew being spoken, there's a lot of Judaica and Israeli art, and there's Hebrew on our walls. I think about it, and I think about it regularly. And when I, you know, walk around my house and I look at the art on the walls, I think about it and think about the history and the culture of it all. And for me, that's that's the most important piece. That's really the most beautiful piece of it all. I didn't grow up celebrating Shabbat every Friday night. It was here and there. My husband did grow up where Shabbat every Friday night was with his grandmother and his family and you never missed Shabbat. And that's something that we have been trying to incorporate more into our life here together because it's it's so important for him. And to be honest, it's a little bit less important to me, the prayers and the blessings, but 
just being together as a family and having that space on Friday night exist for that, I think is really important. And it was, again, just a really beautiful moment. And it wouldn't be our own moment if we didn't redefine our own tradition. We had um, my mother as part of the role, um, you know, holding Avi and bringing him to the moil. And then Fred got to hold him after his naming ceremony, my father-in-law. And then I got to recite a prayer. I did the Father's blessing, but I did my own blessing. So Fred did the traditional blessing, and then I created my own blessing of kind of the values that I really wanted to instill in him. And it really meant the world to me, and it kind of made me part of that tradition. And it was a true buy-in. And I just, I still remember that moment. It, it brings me to tears because it was, it was truly a beautiful ceremony. I had no clue what I was in for, even up until the day of. I know for a fact that I have become a much better Jew because of my children, that they have been my teachers. And what they have taught me is to speak up. I carry a sense of that kind of bystander guilt. And I realize now that that came from being raised to be quiet about your Judaism. Nobody told me, nobody had to tell me that. I understood it. I wouldn't say anything because I would have this deep fear, like primal fear. And I have learned to change because my children don't have it. They don't have it. And they, they just say what needs to be said. They have nothing to prove to anyone. And it's not charged for them. Their religion is not a charged subject. There was a moment where we were at high holiday services and after so many years of them, you know, complaining about having to go to Jewish school and complaining about why they needed to learn the Torah and this and that and the other and ditching and getting out of those classes and the Hebrew teachers calling me and telling me my kids weren't good Jews and so on. Um, I remember this high holiday where I have my 19-year-old daughter, my 17-year-old son, both, I'm, I'm only five foot four, both are towering over me, next to me, and reading and singing every single word of the service by heart. And of course, I don't know how, <laughs> you see, because I didn't go to Hebrew school and I wasn't raised that way. So as I hummed along with the melody, I was surrounded by two of the greatest Jews in the world. And I looked at them and I couldn't exactly understand how they came out of me and how this happened. But, but it was really, really a beautiful moment. Special thanks to Amy Weinreb. It was a real treat talking to you. Amy is a senior lecturer at the Schusterman Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks also to Elena Raphael. Elena is a psychotherapist and life coach. Learn more about Elena's work at elenaraphael.com. Thanks to Carolyn Mahbubi. Carolyn is a leadership coach and much, much more. Learn more about Carolyn's work and her journey at carolynmahbubi.com. Thanks to Matt Hilgard. Matt is the director of the Government Relations Department for the Association of Minnesota Counties. A very special thanks to Lisa Osborne, my mother. Lisa is a lifelong elder care professional, and she's much more than that. Lisa is also a sensitive, kind, generous, and loving soul. Thank you for being my mom. 
Thanks, as always, to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joint Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work as a composer, visit nicorivers.com. And to learn about his work in film and audio production, visit auraformaudio.com. That's A-U-R-A-F-O-R-M audio.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And for his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazaro. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. We also feature the music of Ezekiel's Wheels. Thanks to the band and Abigail Reisman for making that happen. Learn more about Ezekiel's Wheels at ewklezmer.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available for creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and by visiting our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. And remember, Joy and Conversation is still independent, but it's now the audio experience for Project Mosaics an education nonprofit dedicated to promoting humanities education that elevates and centers Jewish histories, cultures, arts, and identities through the creation of digital multimedia content in order to illuminate the plurality of Jewish voices and experiences from around the world in classrooms right here at home. Consider donating to Project Mosaics to help us create content for teachers and students that is multicultural and culturally affirming. Support Project Mosaics and help us connect the pieces of Jewish history. You can learn more at projectmosaics.org. Beshufiku. We'll see you next time. Oh my god, I'm sorry. All these all these babies I've had have really ruined my my brain. <laughs> <laughs>